0: Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. What happens in your brain when I say the word jellyfish? If you're not a marine biologist, and if going to the beach almost anywhere in the world is a part of your life, the word probably makes you wince. Maybe you remember getting stung. Maybe you remember someone putting meat tenderizer on it. Is it good for anything else? But as my guest today, Julie Burwald knows, jellyfish are neither a fish nor the cartoon villains that we make them out to be. They're a fascinating, complex, diverse life form whose tentacles are tangled up in all of our lives in ways we're only dimly aware of. Julie Burwald is a science writer with a Ph.D. in ocean science. Her new book is Spineless, The Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone. Welcome to Think Again, Julie.
1: It's great to be here.
0: So where shall we begin with the jellyfish? You know, I guess I imagine a wag out there going, "Jellyfish, why should I care?" So, may, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe let's just start there. Why, why should normal people be interested in jellyfish?
1: I mean, I think cutting to the punchline, it's because there's been a big discussion in recent years that jellyfish abundances are increasing globally. And the question is why? I mean, they used to not or there is a perception that they weren't so abundant in the past. And the reason why I got interested in, in them is because the abundances seem to be growing because of things that we're doing. And those things are, you know, all of the harms that we're doing to the ocean, things like warming the water, which allows some species of jellyfish to reproduce faster. That carbon dioxide that we're adding to the atmosphere that warms it also has a secondary effect of acidifying the ocean. And jellyfish may tolerate that acidification better than things with shells that dissolve very easily in acid, like, you know, crabs, mollusks.
0: So from a jellyfish perspective, it's all good, right? I mean...
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of things are good. The problem with jellyfish is that... um, And I'm not quite finishing the answer to that first question, but the problem with jellyfish (laughs) is that uh, they have been systematically understudied by science and by, you know, just by people for the whole 20th century. And the reason is, is because there was this, there was this really, there was a ton of excitement about jellyfish at the turn of, in the 1900s, um, when evolution was really, people were wondering, how did we come to be, you know, what What is the evolution of us? And we look back through the tree of life and we find jellyfish near the bottom. And we're like, well, what can they tell us about um, how you put an organism together in a primitive way? So there's some really interesting questions you can ask about that. And jellyfish do cool things like form colonies. And, you know, how does a colonial organism relate to an animal that has actual organs? You know what? So all those connections were really interesting. People were looking at them. And then what happened was we started looking at the ocean with motors, and we started dragging nets through the water really fast. And it was a great way to explore the ocean, but the problem is jellyfish can't handle that kind of treatment. And so our view of the ocean became biased to things that are, are hard. You know, So we look at the ocean, and what we find are hard shell things like fish that can come up in a net, and crabs, and even the plankton that we get come out of a net. And so we've undersampled the ocean in terms of jellyfish and really haven't paid attention to them.
0: You know, I want to ask, like, is there is there kind of a thing that happens in science in terms of a shifting interest between the more complex end of the spectrum of organisms and the more simple end of the spectrum of organisms in terms of like, you know, where funding goes and what we think is going to yield more interesting answers?
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Funding definitely drives a lot of science. And that's hard. You know, like when I when I got my PhD, I got it in a field called ocean optics. Um, My PhD was in I worked on I worked on satellite algorithms, like what happens when you take a satellite and you look at the ocean. And I was trying to come up with how much photosynthesis is going on, like how much phytoplankton are in the ocean and how much carbon dioxide are they taking out of the atmosphere? This was like climate change research and it was 25 years ago. And so at the time, the ocean optics field in the United States was huge. And that's because we were just coming out of the Cold War. And during the Cold War, there was a lot of submarine tactics going on and scientists, uh, submarines were very visible in this one layer of the ocean where there was a ton of bioluminescence. And so, so there was a ton of funding into, like, how do, we obs- how do we measure that bioluminescence? How do we detect it? Where is it? Um, what are the optics of it? And so when I started my PhD, there was a ton of money in ocean optics, and I kind of, you know, worked on that. Now, since then, the money has gone away the satellites that look at the ocean and allow us to calculate photosynthesis globally. We don't own one in the United States anymore. Um, okay. Yeah. we have to get,
0: because, our- because we're not looking for submarines and because we have other means available to us as well, like
1: I mean, sonar and so on. So or? I'm not a scientist anymore, so I can't say for right, sure, right. but I have a suspicion it has to do with wanting to fund things that tell us more about climate change. Right. Um, Gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, right, the Cold War died, so we don't need to worry so much about ocean optics, and and the funding just kind of goes away. Um, But
0: I I mean, going, you know, I guess what I was was asking, though, is that, like, I mean, jellyfish, they kind of run the gamut. There are some really simple ones biologically and some fairly complex ones or much more complex ones. Uh, But I was wondering generally whether there's like a a pendulum swing that happens in science in terms of funding for studying more complex things versus simpler biological systems, like whether there are periods of time when people when, you know, science is like, if we study the simplest system, we will understand the origins of life versus we're all about the brain and the neurology. So it's all about octopuses now or or whatever. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Know if I can exactly answer that? I I think that you know there's this charismatic megafauna idea where like when things have charisma they do tend to get more study. You know it's really easy for Congress people to make fun of like cow farts and yet methane is a really really important greenhouse gas. You know I I don't know if I I can completely answer that question, but I think science would love. That's interesting about charisma
0: though. I mean so like and you talk about this in the book that like jellyfish. They don't seem to have faces, so they're hard for us to relate to, right? But right. But, but there's a lot going on there, and they do in this. They do have faces, actually, right? Can we talk a in little a bit way, about yeah. that? In a way, yeah. 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 Let's talk about them. Like they're faces such as they are and their eyes and and those kinds of interesting features.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, and this is something I didn't know till I started looking in a jellyfish. But if you look around that, if you're like ever in an aquarium and you look around the outside of a jellyfish's bell, like the umbrella, there's these little intensifications, I guess is the easiest way to say it around the outside. And like on a moon jellyfish, that's the one with the clover on the top you'll find in most aquaria. And, uh, those little intensifications are actually an organ called a repelia, or repelium, singular, repelia, plural. And they have eight of them around the outside. And each one of those has some, an, a, a visual sensor or two. Sometimes, actually, in the moon jellyfish, there's two visual sensors. There's a thing called a touch plate, which can measure current and it can measure, you know, it smells chemicals in the water. It has a a thing called a statocyst, which is it's like balance organ, like our inner ear. Also located right near it, near each one of them is a thing called a pacemaker. And uh, we don't actually know the true character of the pacemaker. We don't even know like the nodule of nerves where it's located. But what it does is it controls how fast the jellyfish's bell pumps. So it it gets information from all those sensory organs, which are like a face. And then it responds by pumping quickly or, or not so quickly, depending on what it's sensing.
0: The pumping achieves, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about that. What 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 does that do for movement or for? Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. So the pumping yeah. controls how fast it moves. And I, that's one of, I think, one of my favorite stories in the book is the movement of the jellyfish. That was like one of the funnest conversations I had. I was in Woods Hole speaking to these jellyfish scientists who are working on building robotic jellyfish. And the idea—they got funding from the, from the Navy for that. And the idea is that you could put a jellyfish out in like a bay with a bunch of equipment to sort of spy on what was going on, and just let it sit there like a like an operative kind of, you know, pumping away.
0: Invisible submarines, as it yeah, were. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but they never got that far. I just, I, as far as I know, there's no jellyfish robots out there <laughs> spying on anyone. But uh, so they created this jellyfish and. Um, they put it in the water and they turned it on and it like it, it squeezed its bell closed and that jets it forward. And then it and then it really it opened up the way, you know, you've seen the jellyfish and it went right back to the spot where it had started like a yo-yo. It went back and forth back and forth. And they're like, what what is that? And then the the like graduate student who was working on it was like, well, I never put the little peplum on the edge you, you see the little flap on the edge of a jellyfish bell he's like i i didn't have time to glue that on and they're like well let's glue it on so they put it back in the water and they and they turn the robot on again and it pumps out of you know really fast away and they realize that 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 passive motion of the peplum on a jellyfish bell is actually what what drives it
0: forward and the peplum is 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 essentially so like what you were saying in the book, which I found really fascinating, and maybe you were about to get to, and I'm interrupting you, but but that that we normally think about motion through the water or you know, as a pushing away or anywhere, really, on land as well. We're pushing off the earth when we run right and and that without the peplum, the jellyfish is essentially pushing at the water, but maybe the peplum is creating a suction of sorts, a vacuum as it were, that then pulls it, and, the, and that pulling is what makes them such efficient swimmers. And if I've totally misunderstood <laughs> that, please correct me for the enlightenment of our audience. No,
1: so, yeah, so it's actually kind of tricky. Um, to do it without pictures, but the peplum creates these vortices. Right. And then the jellyfish kind of pushes back against the vortices, but then they did a little more work on it. And what they discovered is that the whole flexion of the bell, which kind of starts with that peplum, the flexion of the bell creates a low pressure zone in front of the jellyfish. And even though the vortices on the peplum do push, push back on the water and create a high pressure behind it, you know, that it pushes against. The low pressure of, because of the flexion of the whole bell in front of it, that low pressure is actually a greater force sucking the jellyfish through the water. And then they started looking around the animal kingdom at all kinds of things that bend, everything you look at in the water bends. And the reason for that bend is in fact, to create those low pressures in front of the animals and suck things through the water. So we've had it all backwards. You know, when we, when we think about going through the water, we think about it from our perspective on land, which is pushing back on things only because there's not enough viscosity in the air. The air isn't thick enough to create that low pressure for us. Um, but in the ocean, the low pressure sucking is actually a way more important way to move. And the jellyfish taught us that.
0: That's really that's really interesting. And and they are and. They are the most efficient swimmers on the planet, as far as we know, right?
1: Well, yeah, that we've measured. That's okay. the thing with jellyfish. yeah, that's the thing with jellyfish is, you know, they they compared it to like something like a a salmon, which is a powerful swimmer, known to be a powerful right. swimmer. And the jellyfish use like a about a fifth as much energy to move the same distance as a salmon does
0: also fascinating. You know, this this was another thing I found very interesting. was about you were talking about, um at one point in the book about, the eyes of the box jellyfish, and the fact that and kind of what they tell us about how a simpler neuroatomical s- structure can can achieve more complex behaviors. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that about how the fact that it has six eyes is directly tied to the fact that its brain is is much less complex than ours. Um, and yeah, can we go there?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a really cool story. So the box jellyfish has four of those ropelia that I was talking about before. One on each corner. The box jellyfish are kind of box shaped. That's the name. So so anyway, each one of the hat does have six eyes on it. And um, so they were wondering, you know, like, so six eyes and one on each corner for a total of 24 eyes on this animal. Like what's going on with that? And what they've discovered by doing like almost experiments like what you would do with a rat going through a maze is uh that each of the eyes has a different purpose and I think I'm going to get it a little bit wrong but like the lower eye that has the lens the perfect lens that we were talking about its job is to look at the roots of the mangroves where this jellyfish lives so that it doesn't bump into them and then the upper eye that also has a lens it its job is to look up at the trees look out of the water and this is like crazy and and make sure it's it's close enough to the shore that it's it's not gotten out of the canopy of the mangrove trees because all of its food is is underneath the mangroves and if it gets out into the open ocean it'll starve and then another one of its eyes actually controls the angle of the repelium as it swims so that its top and bottom eyes are looking where it needs to look. And I can't remember each, but anyway, each of the eyes has a different purpose. And so the idea that the scientists who study this, what they think is going on is that because the brain is a more diffuse or the nervous system is more diffuse than ours, it's not cephalized like ours, you have to pre-filter the information before the animal gets a hold of it. So, all the information coming out of that bottom eye has only one purpose, and that leads to a simpler neurological setup when you only have to look for one thing coming out of one eye. You just you need more eyes,
0: but yeah, the, the brain isn't doing any interpretive work. It's right. not like the way you described it in the book the the human our human eyes are pulling in tons of data right. and just sorting it out in all different kind of ways, according to memory and, you know, et cetera, right. that that's not what's that, you know, a jellyfish just needs to get it and take action.
1: Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, yeah, by diffusing the input that's coming in through one eye, you can you can process it faster. It's amazing what they can do. And if you watch them swimming, they swim like fish, which do have a cephalized brain. Uh, they only have two eyes, but they have a cephalized brain that can make all these decisions So about how to dodge things and go for pieces of prey. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a different setup. It's pretty fascinating.
0: It is. I mean, also fascinating about it, I was talking a long time ago to a philosopher who studies the octopus brain who was talking about how, um, you know, and, and one of the things I found fascinating there is that very much unlike, like, we we like to think of the brain as, a centrally located uh, director telling the rest of the body what to do. In octop- in octopuses, they have all these nerve clusters throughout their body. And in a sense, you can think of the tentacles as almost like independent right. organs then communicating back. So there's something a little similar going on in the distributed system of jellyfish. Yeah, For,
1: yeah absolutely. And I mean, it's not just jellyfish either. I, worms have a second cluster of nerve bu- nerve bundles near their bellies. Um you know, I think it's a more, it's probably maybe a more ancestral system to have, have distributed nerve clusters around the body. Um, and yeah, you know, it, it's really effective. It's it's here today. So it's clearly an effective way to to be
0: right, right. Oh, and by the way, jellies is the way the cool kids call them, right?
1: That's what I not say. J- so <laughs> if, <laughs> if you think I'm cool, then <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I got the, I got the sense that that was a, you know, I mean, jellyfish is inaccurate, right? I mean, they're not fish. Yeah.
1: I mean, people say jellyfish all the time. There was a push I felt like for a little while calling them sea jellies, the way that we call them sea stars instead of starfish. But uh, people know what jellyfish are, so I feel like it is what it is. I like science to be really, really accessible. So if you want to call them jellyfish and and still learn about them, then great. (laughs) you
0: know. It's the old, it's the old prescriptivist descriptivist debate in uh, among lexicographers. So you, yeah, you, 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 you know, like this is how we say it. Let it, let it be. Let it
1: be. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, the other thing is that you know, jellyfish are jellies. Get involved in our lives and our science in tons of ways that most people don't know about. Maybe we can talk about some of those. They, first of all, they're a big nuisance for for a yeah. lot of like f- industry industries that are lo- that pump in seawater to cool things, and and they're and also the history of bioluminescence and the studies yeah. around that. And now I know that like in the gene editing stuff that's going on, like they're using. Bioluminescence, which must be the descendant of that stuff you write about, that was derived from jellyfish. So let, let's talk about some of these many applications of jellyfish.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, starting off with the power plants as problems. The jellyfish, every year, in parts of the world where there are power plants located near the ocean, they will form blooms and clog them, and those power plants will use seawater to cool down their machinery. And so they suck.
0: Oh, and I, I, I'm i sorry, yeah. I have to interrupt and say that, that blooms are the breathtakingly beautiful name for a cluster, a, an abundance of jellyfish, right?
1: Yeah, you know, it's actually funny. There's like a book of collective nouns out there and they have the word smack. As a collection of jellyfish, I tried to look into like, where did that smack come from? And I can't, I mean, the only thing I can think of is if it was smacking the sides of boats or something, I don't know, but I never found the origin of it. And I have never heard anyone say that at a scientific (laughs) meeting. So I, yeah, everyone talks about blooms and this idea of blooming because, um, I know like in my yard, when there's a drought, the acorns will, will go like crazy. And, um, you know, blooming and fruiting is a way that plants try to find a new habitat. It makes me wonder, like all these increased abundances of jellyfish that we're seeing, is it because of problems and, you know, things that we were doing to the oceans and the jellyfish are like, hey, let's get the hell out of here. Let's find somewhere new. So there's that piece of it. I don't think we have an answer to it, but I think it's a pretty interesting way to think about it. But back to the blooms when the blooms happen. <laughs> yeah, they can cause huge problems for people at beaches. You know, they sting and that sting is depending on the species, it's really really bad. It can be lethal in fact. So there's there's a, a real problem. They do clog power plants and they have to shut down operations when there's jellyfish blooms and then you if you if you wanted to google it and just kind of see the massive quantity of jellyfish that have to get cleared out of power plants. When a bloom runs into them, there's like those containers that you see on the back of a train, they'll just be full of jellyfish that they've had to like scoop out of the water.
0: That's crazy. Yeah,
1: it's really crazy. And then they also like they can crash into, um, aquaculture farms. And just about two weeks ago, there was a huge bloom that crashed into an aquaculture farm in Scotland and killed, about a half a million salmon, so they can, um, yeah, corpses, you know, and it's really all, so they can be, have devastating impacts. And then
0: I have to say also that listening to you talk about them, it is extremely infectious how excited you are (laughs) about the wall of death that and, and just their stealthy and awesome nature. That's pretty cool.
1: Well, yeah. They're yeah, they're they're pretty cool. I I mean they've been yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they've been neglected at our peril also just in terms of how interesting they are. You know?
0: Indeed. So there is so much so. that we didn't say cover, but maybe some of it comes back to us in this second part of the episode. This is where Our producers here, our video producers at Big Think, have dug up some clips, some may be more recent, some may be older, from our video interview archives. And these are just conversation starters for you and me, Julie, to see where we go in the second half. Okay, so this first clip is Joshua Bach, who is a cognitive scientist, and it is titled, Do Humans Have Free Will or Are We Programmed by Society? And it doesn't necessarily say anything about jellyfish, but we'll see where we go from there.
2: I grew up in Eastern Germany. Um, It was um, communist Eastern Germany and it was a very weird ideological country. A country that believed in stories about how the world works, that I as a nerd thought are obviously not quite true. I had difficulty believing the official stories about how the world works. It was like some weird kind of religion. And then the wall came down and it didn't surprise me in the least. And then we entered a new dream, a new shared Uh, model of the world. It was not quite true. And I realized that most people now fall for this new model. It was very interesting to see this for me. And um, if you look for instance at the US, the majority of US Americans do not believe in the theory of evolution despite all the evidence to the contrary. Uh, The majority of people on this planet are religious, even though there doesn't seem to be very good evidence for a multitude of creator gods and so on, in my view at least. And if it existed, if a creator god existed, it would be very hard for me to understand why this creator god really does care about whether I worship it or um, um, all these things that we attribute to creator gods by religion. So it's, it's very hard for me in some sense to intuitively understand why humans are religious and why humans are ideological. But I think now over the years, um, that this is not a bug, it's a feature. Humans are a programmable species. Religions and ideologies are operating systems for societies. and They have been so throughout most of our history. And this idea that we can build society based on rational arguments is very, very recent and very novel. And it's not entirely clear if it really works. But it's clear that we cannot really build societies on conflicting ideologies that are at war with each other. In the past, it has led to situations where the ideology solved the problems by killing the unbelievers, or the religions did the same thing. And we all agree this is not what we want to have. We want to have an open society, a pluralistic society, a non-violent, tolerant society, but still one where people work together and cooperate well.
1: I guess one thing I want to say is that I think we tell ourselves stories Right. And that we're we're clearly story people. And so the idea of religion being a story that we connect to is makes perfect sense to me. The idea of science being stories that we connect to also makes perfect sense to me. Like one of the things I tried to do in this book, you know, science has a kind of a bad rap right now. We're <laughs> having a lot there's a there's a lot of pushback against science right. and I think part of the reason is is because We haven't told our stories well enough. In the years before I even considered that I could be an author, I would read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of science. And I, a lot of it was written, uh, I would put the book down I'd be like, geez, I could never write a book like that, you know? And then one day it occurred to me, oh geez, I could never write a book like that. And it changed the inflection and it made me realize like, I couldn't write a book like that because I need to tell a story. And I think that the stories aren't so strong in a lot of science writing. It's getting a lot better, and I feel like anyone who hasn't read science writing lately needs to go back and, and, and check it out, because people are writing amazing things. But there was a history of science being told in a very dull way. The reason why religion is attractive is because it's told in a way that's really compelling. And um, science can be that com- is that compelling, I believe. So I didn't want to insert myself into my book originally, but I realized that in order to make people interested in jellyfish, which is like a very, you know, on the outset, like that even makes me laugh. You know, I had to tell a story and make, make it interesting. And, and um, part of that was by insert, part, the way I did that partially was ins- by inserting myself into the book.
0: We didn't get to talk about that too much but that's we can definitely go there. I mean you you know you this this is also the story of you and kind of how the interest in jellyfish found found your way back to a place that you wanted to be which was after after years of kind of focusing more on parenthood writing and studying these things again uh, you know in a more comprehensive way if I'm yeah, right.
1: yeah. I, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a way for me to say, hey, I have a voice and I want to share my voice with the world and in, in this strange way, but way that seemed to really work and, and be the right choice for me. Let's see. He talked about how religion can be divisive. And the one thing I want to say about that is, you know, I live in Texas. So Austin is known as a sort of blue bubble, but it's actually still Texas. And a lot of people who are my neighbors and my friends and the parents of my, you know, have very strong religious beliefs. And I think it's important for us to understand those. Yeah, I think when you live in a liberal enclave, which I did also on the East Coast for a long time, you can get very dismissive of that. And I think it's not okay.
0: We were actually talking about this just last week with Van Jones on the show, you know, uh, who, who after the after the recent election, you know, has who, even though he is, as he describes himself, to the left of Pluto, um, has spent a lot of time trying to get people to stop dismissing each other out of hand, particularly on the progressive left, dismissing the rest of the country as idiots because of things like religious belief
1: yeah absolutely. The fact that I live in a place where there's people around me who I are my friends, who believe differently than me, I think it makes me stronger because I have to understand my own point of view better. It goes without saying we need more empathy in this country anyway. So you know, I feel like from what we just listened to could lead to a very divisive kind of thing, and i, I don't I don't think we're going to get anywhere on that front. You know, to me, we've got to solve the problem of climate change. we really do and there's no way we can go at it if if we're divisive. This is a global problem.
0: I mean as you know, climate change affects all all of us so if we're able to figure out communicate the ways that climate change affects each individual person, each demographic, where it hits them where they live that that is that is how we can all kind of understand and and work together on it.
1: yeah, I mean, Right. Yeah. Although even that, I mean, there's some evidence that um, even like people in Louisiana whose homes are being literally washed into the sea right now, you know, I've I've seen reporting where they don't believe that climate change is actually a real thing. So there's a lot of identity politics involved. That's where just talking to people, you know, not even trying to prove anything, just talking to other people who are different than you can make a difference I think.
0: I mean it's that's it's the kind of thing that one can do in the sort of format that we have that we're we're using right now where we're having an actual conversation but in a lot of the online media that kind of dominates our our brain space right now it's a lot more talking at than listening to right it's a lot more yeah. one way broadcasting you know.
1: Yeah, I know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. Very so, difficult. so
0: I mean, I think, you know, I think that's what like one of the challenges we face is that, you know, that's that's what a lot of the noise is right now. Um Yeah, yeah. I was thinking. No, I was going to say, though, like going back to what he was saying, like, I think I think I read that. Yeah. So. So Kant, uh, who I'm not going to quote exactly here, um A, because I don't speak German and B, because I don't <laughs> remember the translation is um it said something to the effect that you know that that the trouble for humankind is that there are all of these questions that we feel compelled to answer which cannot be answered so which we don't have any like you know access to the answers to right so that's where i guess things like religion those kinds of quote unquote operating systems as he was calling them you know, serve us is in is in providing answers to things that I mean science can't help you with the problem of death.
1: Right. Yeah, I once got embroiled in the in evolution debate here in Texas when the um, State Board of Education was trying to insert language that allowed creationism to be taught in science classes. So that was an interesting. Period, and I wrote a piece for Wired about it. And I'm not sure I came up with this on my own, but but this is what I do think about this this issue: is that science, science and religion, I think they answer two different questions. You know, science asks at answers how How did we come to be? You know, what what is the mechanism by which us in in all of our incredible you know adaptation to this planet? And jellyfish and all their incredible, different and bizarre, strange, incredible adaptations to this planet. How did they come to be? What religion can answer for us is sort of maybe what philosophy can also answer, which is the why. Why are we here? And and science will never, ever answer why. It can't. It doesn't have the capability to answer those questions.
0: The trouble with the, you know, when it comes to the level of the classroom, and the science classroom, you know, creationism is then trying to fight science on its own turf yeah. you know right. that 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 becomes and then science is gonna be like yo yeah <laughs> we're not that's you know here you 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 want to you want to you want to go like you know here 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 is our response i mean that you can't that's a zero-sum game and, you know
1: well yeah. and i mean yeah creationism <laughs> creationism you know is gonna tell you the, the same answer every time to how you know god it gets to be not so interesting to study I, if this if the answer is the same every time. But if evolution, if you're studying evolution, you have all these different mechanisms, you know, of select- sexual selection and natural selection, and you know you have random mutations of genes. You have all these things that happen in evolution, which are which is very interesting to study. So I
0: mean, not not only is it not very interesting, it also demands a, an incredible kind of mental backflip around the facts that we have available in terms of the fossil record and everything else. Right.
1: Yeah. But if you want to say, why are we here and religion can answer those questions really well for you. So I I respect that. And I think that that's super important for us to um, to recognize and to, you know,
0: I tend to agree with you. Like, I mean, I could certainly get spirited in a discussion with somebody religious about like why we're here w- about the evidence yeah. and yeah, what I see and, you know, whatever. But but I tend to agree with you in terms of the the general live and let live within the different spheres of of study, you know, and, and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So, OK. Yeah. I think this is a perfect place for us to, uh, I think, go to the second clip, and I'm going to take a look at what that, oh, speaking of religion, it's Richard Dawkins, um, albeit not talking about religion. So this should be very interesting, actually. And it's called, Is Animal Cruelty the New Slavery?
3: If you want to erect a moral wall around our species and say, for example, that a human embryo Even a very beginning human embryo, uh, long before it develops a nervous system, is somehow worthy of more moral consideration than an adult chimpanzee. Then that is a rather unevolutionary viewpoint. If you look back in our ancestry, at what point would you draw the line? Would you give, if there were Australopithecus, our ancestor, almost certainly our ancestor, Australopithecus, of three million years ago, if if you were to meet one, if one had survived? In the African jungle, would you give it the same moral consideration as uh, th- as the rest of us, or would you say no, no, that's it has the same moral consideration as a chimpanzee? If we look back in history, uh, a couple of centuries ago, most people accepted slavery, uh, and uh, nowadays, of course, that's a horrifying thought. No, we don't. No civilized person today accepts slavery. And if you look back further still we had the appalling things that the Romans were doing in the Colosseum with, with spectator sport, watching people killing other people or lions killing people, regarding it as fun, entertainment to take the children out to. We're certainly getting better, as Steven Pinker has said in his book, the Better Angels of Our Nature, and Michael Shermer has in, in his book on the Moral Arc. Um, so we're changing a lot and it's therefore sort of fairly obvious thing to do to look into the future and say what will our future descendants think when they look back at us, the way we look back at our slave-owning ancestors with horror. What will our descendants look back on in our time? And I think the obvious candidate would be the way we treat non-human animals. Uh, My view would be that we want to avoid suffering. Therefore the criterion would be can this creature suffer? This is the criterion that Jeremy Bentham, the great moral philosopher, laid out. Uh, Can can they suffer? There's every reason to think that mammals at least and probably many more can, can suffer perhaps as much as we can pain.
0: Let's start with the question of animal research. And you talk about this in your book about how, you know, um, the, I'm forgetting his name and you can remind me, but the person who was doing a great deal of research on jellies around uh. a, in the 1890s or something and was just like yeah. burning them and acidifying them and chopping them to bits, right? Um, and who actually, yeah,
1: George, yeah. George
0: Romanus. George is- and who actually kind of accounted for some of this uh, using the argument that Dawkins here refutes, right, or or doesn't refute, but but saying yeah, they they're pretty simple and they can't really feel much. Right? Yeah, he does,
1: he does. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what George did. I mean, back then, you know, there was a whole thing called vivisection, which was like dissecting things when they were alive. So he was living in this in, in this time, which was yeah, very different than the time we live in now. So.
0: There is a there's a Korean restaurant in near where I live in Queens, where which is famous for serving octopus alive. Um, And I I love the restaurant for other things. But, you know, that fact totally horrifies me. Well, yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I mean, mean,
1: octopiers, they're like the smartest, you know, invertebrate out there. So I I don't know. Did you there's a book Cy Montgomery wrote? last year, two years ago, called The Soul of the Octopus, where she argues that octopuses even have souls. So I can't eat octopus anymore, which is I can't crazy. Either. because I, I can't either. I, yeah, <laughs> but they're actually pretty sustainable in terms of uh, fishery, So, because they reproduce really fast and they produce a lot of offspring. And to take this in a different direction, I think the answer to Dawkins' question about what will our hundred years hence people look back on us and say how could they have done that i mean to me it's clearly like the destruction of the health of our planet through climate change i mean and if you want to talk about suffering i mean these mass migrations of animals that aren't their ecosystems are changing their habitats are changing i mean to me that's just as much suffering as eating them and eating them definitely has a huge impact on the environment but um you know, this global these global problems, we have this lack of concern about what we're doing to our planet, to me is where our future generations are going to look back at us and say, like, what were you thinking? You know, you're just
0: yeah, yeah, no, I I, I mean, look, short sightedness is nothing new in the history of the human species. Yeah, right? I mean, you know, and self interested short sightedness, say on the part of industry, or governments or whatever. It's not justifiable on any level. But I do think future generations may look back if they know anything about history and say, okay, so that's what, that's, that's what people were doing.
1: That was you guys. Uh Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, the fact that we're doing this on a geological scale is astonishing and horrifying. And, and I mean, I know you've probably talked to people who've talked about the Anthropocene and the chemical marks we're leaving on our planet that are going to be there as telltale signs of how we're just, completely being oblivious to to what we should be doing, you know. And the problem is what kills me a lot is that there are solutions out there. You know, there there's ways we can there's so much low-hanging fruit and right. and yet it's just not being picked.
0: <laughs> I so. I don't want to like sort of dismiss the importance of this, which is incredibly important, but I, I do want to veer a little bit. Back towards yeah, the eating? Yeah, just because, not just eating, <laughs> okay. not just eating, but animal, oh, suffering. animal experimentation, et cetera. Like, I really... The jury is not out for me. I mean, I was I you know, I I talked to Richard Dawkins about this and I said, do you think pescatarianism makes any sense? Because, you know, I sit there and I'm like, yeah, I'm basically okay with killing a salmon because it's basically not that bright, you know, but I'm not really okay with it. It's just because that's like the compromise I've decided that, you know, from my high human standpoint on the mountain that I'm, I'm willing to live with. But it seems to me like probably from my personal perspective, regardless of what has happened throughout the history of evolution and the fact that, you know, it's a dog eat dog world out there, like that with the brains we have and with the capacities we have, it, we probably shouldn't be dissecting, you know, killing animals. We probably shouldn't be eating them. We probably probably shouldn't be doing any of that. I don't, you know?
1: I don't know. I, I, I've, here's where I fall. I, I think that, uh, we, I mean, we, we live the omnivores, omnivores dilemma, right? I mean, that is, that is who we are. We're omnivores. So I'm going to go back. We don't have to. You're going to go back to climate change?
0: I'm going to go back to climate. Yeah.
1: So like, if you're going to eat fish, I'm going to ask you to find out where your fish came from and Mm. not just eat fish out of some or you know, some fish farm that's polluting like hell in, you know, Vietnam.
3: Right. I want right, you to sure. say,
1: okay, um, tell me the story of this fish. And then I, I feel, okay, Edie, I'm an omnivore. I'm allowed to eat fish. You know, like I've evolved to eat animal protein. So that's what I would say is like be much more, I don't know if circumspect is the right word, but, um, you specific. know. Specific. <laughs>
0: specific, yeah. yeah about yeah, like yeah, where yeah. does
1: your, where does your meat come from? If you're right. going to eat meat, you know, know the farmer who grew that cow. And no, I, I,
0: that part I totally agree with. But then if I, I mean, th- again, this is just comes down to, I don't know, maybe personal psychology or something. But like when, you know, when I picture a cow being slaughtered by whatever yeah. means, however nice that might be, Trust me, and I, I realize know. that I don't have to eat a cow, right. I'm like, uh, you know, what am I doing? No. Why, why right. am I slitting its throat, you know, humanely?
1: Right. I have the same struggle, so I don't know if I'm going to be so informed on this.
0: But I mean, well, in science, we can at least, you know, let's maybe let's take it to science and then leave it leave it there. I mean, as a biologist or or one who has studied biology, you're at least aware of, you know, some of the benefits of biological research and sort of when and how you know do you believe do, do you believe that it's justified for them to be doing kind of experimentation on animals and to what extent and
1: that's it's really tough i mean whew. yeah i think about it yeah like the mice that are just grown for experimentation right mm. it's it's not easy um yeah but at the same time like we we want we want our medicine that can make us better And you got to test that on mice before you test it in people. So it's a real deal. You know, I want something to take care of me if I get sick. And the truth is that goes through animals. Um,
0: Yeah, these are complex moral choices. And we are, in fact, making a judgment and just saying, yeah, humans are worth more than some mice.
1: We are. I mean, there's this interesting thing, you know, so Dawkins has this old book called The Selfish Gene, where he's like, right. and biologically, the definition of being successful is having more offspring. And so, you know, domesticated animals have, in some ways, used us to increase their fitness. So like mice, I guess you could even think about it with lab rats. Like they have used us to increase their fitness. There's a lot more of them than would exist in the world if we weren't doing experiments on them. I don't know. It gets a little bit turned around in my head. I don't think I really right. like that argument. I don't know. No, I don't know that's a little,
0: Right, 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 right. <laughs> I guess if, if you sat down, you know, if we could sit down with the head of the rat council and sort of ask okay them with this? how they I feel think about they would this be. In, <laughs> increased evolutionary <laughs> no. fitness, no. Yeah, they, they might differ.
1: <laughs> I, it's really, I'm sorry, this, is a, this so, goes into a place that's really tricky. I, I don't have answers. I don't.
0: I, I come from a scientific family, and so it's, you know, it's, it's tricky for me and close to my heart yeah, as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think we we have to end there, but Julie Burwald, I I really enjoyed having you on on the show today. I want to remind everyone that your book, your wonderful book, which has an absolutely beautiful cover, shout out to the designer, by the way, um, is called Spineless, the Science of Jellyfish and the Art of Growing a Backbone. It's beautifully written highly engaging and fascinating on a subject I didn't know much about. Thanks so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun.
0: And that's it for another episode of Think Again. Uh, I'm in Chicago this weekend at Third Coast, which is kind of the woodstock of radio and podcasting conferences. So I'm really excited. I'm going to be going around and just absorbing uh, tidbits of wisdom from Ira Glass and Jad Abumrad and all the other sages of the audio world. Um, Meanwhile, we've got big, exciting changes going on over here at Think Again. We have some new microphones that hopefully you are enjoying the sound of. We've been playing around with the intros. We're looking into the possibility of some live shows here in New York. If you're a fan um, or if you're new to the show but you're liking it, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at jason at bigthink.com and tell me one thing that really struck you or stuck with you out of a recent episode and why. Uh, We're back next week with something that couldn't be more different from Jellyfish. And I hope you can join us.